If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. We are five days into 2023. So, how is that New Year's resolution working for you? Here's Scott Thompson. That's not nice at all. Good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today. All right, we've talked about this forever, yet nothing seems to be done. What a surprise. Uh, but recently, the Financial Post, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, printed a column by Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Uh, more needs to be done to contain the Governor General extravagance. And uh, we've talked about this before, whether it's flights, dinners, or what have you. And I mean, let's be honest, it's a governor general it's she's entertaining dignitaries and such um so obviously there has to be a certain level of decorum there but at what point does it go from professional decorum to over-the-top extravagance let's bring in franco terrazano canadian taxpayers federation federal director he's here now franco thanks for the time i hope you're well i am hey happy new year and thanks for having me on Happy New Year to you, too, Franco. So we've been down this road several times. Is anything changing? I mean, it just seems to go in one ear and out the other with this government. Well, you know what? Let's give some kudos to members of parliament on this committee because they aren't really taking much nonsense for these bureaucrats. And, you know, I think that says a lot coming from me, right? Because we're the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're always holding politicians accountable, but we got to give some kudos to these MPs who are on this parliamentary committee who are holding the governor general and their bureaucrats accountable. And let me tell you why I think these MPs are getting so ticked off. And they have every right to be upset. When the story first broke by the Post that the governor general and her entourage spent about $100,000 on fancy airplane food during a week-long trip, they brought these bureaucrats to committee to explain themselves. And what the bureaucrats did is they misled our parliamentarians. They misled Canadians. They tried to downplay the extravagance. They told the members of parliament that they couldn't provide the receipts. And turns out all of that was completely misleading. They said apparently, uh, although extravagant, not very extravagant. How do you make the difference there? (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. They said that these meals were, uh, you know, like normal airplane meals that all Canadians are accustomed to. They said that they themselves were shocked by the nearly $100,000 spent on airplane food because they said, you know, we had eggs, we had omelets. The problem with that is that we were watching the committee tape at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and we had the receipts in hand. We filed an access to information request. Well, let me tell you some of the stuff that they were having. They were having beef wellington with jus served with roasted baby potatoes, seasoned with rosemary and garlic. They were enjoying buttery chicken tikka masala. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds good. I'm getting hungry. They were also enjoying stuffed pork tenderloin, pan-fried chicken scallopini. And you know what? To their credit, they did have eggs. They did have omelets, but they were fresh omelets with boars and cheese, sliced chives and sun-dried tomatoes, side of grilled artisan pork sausage. So not exactly the type of meals you're going to find on Flair or WestJet or Air Canada. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, now, let, let, let's, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Um, is this all valid? Or obviously, the governor general is 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 one of those positions where there's a lot of dignitaries being entertained. You do have to have a certain level of decorum. Uh, are, are any of those discussions or, or uh, debates valid? <laughs> I bet you're having a hard time playing devil's advocate. <laughs> because Come on. <laughs> Six figures, I know you got to do it, but I know you're having a hard time over there because, come on, six figures, nearly six figures on airplane food, in-flight catering, nearly six figures on a week-long trip. But it's not just that, right? It's not just the nearly $100,000 that they spent. Let's look at the whole trip. You have the Governor General and an entourage of 29 people going to Dubai 2020, Expo 2020. Why are Canadians, I mean, you could make the argument, I guess, right, that the Governor General is going. Why are 29 entourage going as well? Why are Canadians paying for that many people to go? Not only that, but this is a week-long trip. You know how much money they spent on a week-long trip? More than a million dollars for one week. Okay, so I, you know, I just don't think you can, or, and not you, I just mean the bureaucrats or the governor yep. general, 
can really shrug their shoulders on this one because this is a huge expense. It's coming at a time when you hear countless reports, countless polls of Canadians having a hard time putting food on the table, right? Just think of that for a second. You might have how many families in Canada who are worried about baby formula, whether or not they can afford diapers for their kids, whether or not they can have taco night, whether or not they're you know, going to be able to actually afford Christmas presents, all when our, our governor general and their entourage rack nearly six figures on airplane food, like still out of touch. Uh, MPs are speaking up, as you said, this committee. Will we see results as a result of this? Well, we have seen some results, not enough yet. The bureaucrats are essentially saying, well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make some cost adjustments, you know, we'll reduce meal options, we'll limit special requests, there'll be no more garnishes with the drinks, you know, no lemons, no limes, oh, the sacrifice. So we are seeing these MPs... Now, wait a sec, even if I get a drink, wait a sec, Franco, even if I get a drink on Air Canada, they sometimes put a little wee wedge of a lemon or a lime in there. We don't want to go too far with this. (laughs) Yeah, oh, the tough times in Ottawa, hey, oh, the tough times that our bureaucrats must do for the sake of serving the public. But hold on a second here. So we are seeing a little bit of um, recognition from the bureaucrats, but you know what? I just don't think that the bureaucrats can be uh, put in charge of this. They misled Canadians. They already racked up this huge bill. So we need some top action from our members of parliament. Let me give you three reforms that we should see. Number one, Rideau Hall. Every um, receipt they do on these international trips must be posted online moving forward. Number two, (laughs) this is how a serious government would deal with this. We need to see legitimate budget cuts. If they have enough money to spend nearly six figures on airplane food, maybe they don't need $34 million from taxpayers everywhere, every year, sorry. And number three, not only does the governor general's expenses need to be put under uh, the microscope here, but I think all international travel made by every department, every politician also needs to be put under the microscope. All right, Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, uh, keeping an eye on uh, the finances in Ottawa. And once again, the Governor General getting all kinds of attention. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Well, um, I guess we don't really have to tell you about the travel woes uh, that people have been extreme have been experiencing. Uh, well, pretty much since the uh, the gates opened up after the COVID nineteen pandemic, and unfortunately, we are seeing or saw the same sort of situation over the Christmas holidays that we did during the summer. Uh, whether it's um, well, I'll leave it at that. And now, federal and conser- uh, federal conservative and NDP are calling on the Liberal Transport Minister to testify after hundreds of travelers were stranded over the holidays. Of course, the government is calling Sunwing uh, to task on this, but uh, I'm not sure the Transportation Minister is even going to be there. Let's bring in Mark Straw, Member of Parliament for Chilliwack, Hope, BC, Shadow Minister, Conservative Shadow Minister for Transport, and with us now, Mark. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you, too. Um, so we certainly know all the issues that, w- that we've been experiencing in the past, and, and lots, the government's been taking lots of heat on this, whether it's passports or, or just delays in general over the course of the summer. Uh, but this situation that has happened with Sunwing, is this about government or is this about a private airline with a problem? Well, I think it starts with a, a lack of accountability at the government level, and then that trickles down, quite frankly, to... Uh, to the transport sector. I think that we uh, have a situation where the prime minister uh, doesn't hold his ministers accountable and his ministers don't hold uh, the transportation sector accountable. We we saw a situation, as you mentioned, in the summer, uh, a catastrophic reopening uh, as a result of a shortage of staff. Uh, the government uh, didn't have enough security officers. There weren't enough customs officers. It was It was a disaster. Then they had fancy summits where the minister bragged about bringing together everyone uh, in the fall and said that he had it under control and that it wouldn't happen again uh, this winter. And of course, we now see that it's possibly even worse. Uh, you know, still thousands of bags uh, lined up in Pearson and in uh, Vancouver. Uh, people just now getting home from trips that were supposed to end before Christmas. Yeah. It's been a disaster. And so the company absolutely needs to be held accountable. But so does the minister for failing to hold them accountable, failing to uh, follow through on making the changes necessary to hold them accountable. So we know the government has summoned Sunwing to uh, come to Ottawa and explain themselves. Is the transportation minister involved in this or not? 
Well, this is why we joined with the NDP, Conservative MPs joined with the NDP to to actually force a, a meeting earlier. They proposed to have some hearings when the House resumed in a month, and, and they suggested that only Sunwing and Via Rail should be a part of those discussions. Uh, we disagreed. We believe that needed to be treated urgently. And we also believe that, uh, that we need to, uh, to include the minister. We need to include the airports. We need to include everyone in this ecosystem. It's too easy to point to just the, uh, the hot files, the Sunwing and the Via Rail. We need, these are systemic problems. And the minister himself needs to be there to answer for it. So we've uh, been successful. There'll be a meeting on Monday and, and we're hoping that we can demand the minister uh, come and answer for his failure here and uh, that we can get to, quite frankly, uh, stop this cycle of incompetence and uh, and failure in the transportation sector. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the transportation minister has said after this situation around Christmas, they have to ensure what happened over the holidays has not happened again. But he said something very similar uh, in the summer. What can the transport minister do? Well, I think he needs to, right now the the worst that seems to happen to an airline that strands passengers uh, in a foreign country or an airport that that uh, has their gates closed and, and keeps people on the tarmac for eleven hours is they can expect a mean tweet from the minister. He'll say it's unacceptable. That seems to be the extent of the of the damage that is done to them uh, or the accountability that they have. We see in the United States the transportation secretary there calling Southwest Airlines to Washington, taking real action immediately to ensure that there was accountability. And you can bet that they're going to have uh, more of a price to pay than simply having uh, a mean tweet from from that, uh, from that the transportation secretary. So uh, I think there needs to be a real accountability. It can't just be words. There needs to be action. This government is very good at, at saying the right thing, but when it comes to time for the rubber to meet the road, uh, they don't deliver. We, you mentioned passports. You mentioned uh, consecutive travel seasons now that have been absolute disasters. We need to ensure that they're held accountable and that government is holding airlines, airports, railways accountable when they fail Canadian passengers. I'm reading uh, right off uh, a news channel right now saying that we um, Sunwing has released a statement saying that they are uh, very sorry for what has happened, incredibly sorry uh, for what has happened over the holidays uh, and have reduced some capacity during the month of January to ensure they can ex- execute the highest standards, blah, 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 blah. Um, that being said, does when when the company apologizes like this, does that get the transportation minister off the hook? Well, it sure doesn't from the conservative perspective. Uh, they, these are, the, like I say, that sounds like what the minister does. It, it's, it's empty rhetoric that is cold comfort to the people that spent days in hotel lobbies or sleeping on the flo- cold floor of an airport. Uh, so we need real systemic changes to ensure that this can't happen again. And we need, quite frankly, more than a press release 10 days after the fact from a company saying we're really sorry, uh, we've worked really hard to try to fix it. But that, again, doesn't help the people who were stranded. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make them whole. And we need to make sure that we're not just using empty words, that we're taking significant action, and that everyone in the ecosystem, we're not just talking about airlines here, we're talking about airports, we're talking about security, CBSA, the, the border services. The entire ecosystem needs to be included in this. And the accountability needs to start at the top with the Minister of Transport. Um, NDP leader talking about more competition. Conservatives agree with that. Do we need more choices here in Canada where we can fly or how we can fly, rather? I, I think we will always, we always think there should be competition. But until you fix the systemic problems, bringing more competitors into a flawed system, into a broken system, hmm. isn't going to serve Canadians well. If you, if you have more airlines... That uh, that can uh, that can abuse passengers in this way, or if you have more, you know, the airports can continue to to uh, to mishandle thousands of pieces of luggage or keep people stranded on tarmacs. It doesn't matter how many competitors you have. What matters is that the system is working, and that the the Canadian Transportation Agency that is supposed to look after people after the fact to adjudicate between passengers and the airlines right now. There's a 30,000 case backlog. It's 18 months to to have a case considered. That's not good enough either. And uh, so we need to fix the system 
Um, com- competition is great, but it, you need the, those competitors need to be in a system that is working for Canadian consumers, for Canadian passengers. That's the work that needs to be done. So will these meetings become a reality, Mark? Will this all happen? Will we see the the, uh, the transportation minister and these MPs and the airlines and such at a meeting on this? When would that happen? So on Monday, we, we have we have been successful in having a meeting called on Monday, and that's the meeting where we will make the case that there needs to be emergency hearings, that we need to hear from the minister, that we need to hear from the airlines and the airports and the railways. So we'll be making the case that the minister must come answer for what's happened. And so we'll see on Monday uh, whether the government is going to put up a fight on that or whether they will agree with conservatives that we need to uh, have accountability that starts at the top. All right, there you have it. Uh, Mark Straw with us, Member of Parliament for Chilliwack, Hope, B.C., Conservative Shadow Minister for Transport, talking about the Conservatives and the NDP, calling on the Liberal Transport Minister to testify uh, after the debacle that we saw travel-wise over Christmas, very similar to what we saw over the summer. Mark, thanks for the time. Good luck. Okay, thanks so much. Great news coming out of Cincinnati today, a news conference uh, with the University of Cincinnati's uh, Medical Center doctors saying that uh, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills is awake and showing remarkable improvement following his mid-game cardiac arrest on Monday, which uh, just shocked everybody who was watching. Let's bring in Dr. Andrew Friesen, Associate Associate Professor of uh, Kinesiology with the Pennsylvania State University and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for your time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well. Happy New Year, Scott. And Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, Your thoughts on the injury to this Buffalo Bill player and uh, the news conference we saw today saying that he was talking. Obviously, that's a great sign. Yeah, that is very encouraging, and certainly for for you know everyone involved, from from teammates to coaches to the sports line staff as well. Um, that's uh, that's going to be very encouraging, and and certainly a whole lot of. Um, a whole lot of emotions that's going to be uh, uh, experienced by everyone, everyone uh, from from very pleasant emotions to uh, some very unpleasant emotions as well, I would imagine. Doctors were saying uh, he seemed to be neurologically intact. What does that mean? Uh, that, as I understand, uh, uh, and I'm not a medical doctor, but as I understand, it, that is that he's relatively responsive. Um, uh, and I've, I've heard uh, reports that he is able to verbally communicate as well. Uh, but that's that's the extent of what I'd be able to tell you on that. Uh, and we heard that he actually asked doctors if he had won or if the team had won the game, to which the doctors replied, yes, you've won the game of life. Uh, the fact mm-hmm. that he can coordinate that kind of a sentence, uh, what does that say? Uh, it shows where where his headspace is a little bit in terms of um, – um, perhaps giving a little bit of meaningfulness to the injury that he sustained. Uh, and I imagine that that's something that is going to be taken up by his teammates as well next week when they, um, when they play for the first time is, is, you know, I, I, I've talking to a few athletes, it's, it's a therapeutic process to kind of get back into game mode. Um, even though you have a, a, a teammate that's in such critical condition, but, uh, there is some comfort in going back into the routine and preparing for the next game. And really, in doing so, you're, you're connecting with the overall purpose of the team and, once again, given, giving some meaning to uh, DeMar's injury. And so that's probably a very important coping mechanism for, uh, for the teammates. We remember how distraught they were on the field. I mean, the players were crying, you know, at, at, what, at one point, and then there was the delay of whether the game would be postponed and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, the fact that he is making a recovery, does that help with all of this healing? I would imagine so. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's likely going to ease a little bit of the sadness that, that we saw, that initial response. And sadness is a very tricky emotion. It's it's when you when you have a sport like football, a, a very physical and contact sport, um, we see that anger is a very uh, um, instrumental emotion, a very helpful emotion. We typically run faster, we hit harder, and we jump higher when we're angry. The research that uh, we've done on emotions and emotion regulation uh, shows that when you have an angry athlete, but you add even just the tiniest bit of sadness, like we're talking about going from a zero to a one, 
um, that is enough sadness to completely neutralize any positive effects from playing angry. And so I imagine that uh, with with the encouraging news of Demar on on um, well not necessarily on the mend yet, but but the encouraging news would right. uh, help alleviate some of that uh, some of that initial sadness and also take away some of the shock value as well, which likely did not put uh, athletes in uh, in an ideal performance state. Can this motivate the team? You know, we have to do it now for Demar. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's something that that we typically do when we come across uh, very tragic circumstances like this. And the most, uh, you know, famous one is, is you know, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. You know, someone who, you know, went through the atrocities of, of concentration camps and the way that he got through it and turned it into a whole type of therapy was finding meaning in this, in this, uh, in this adversity and, and this trauma. And so when you're able to give extra meaning to a tragedy, uh, that becomes a bit of a rallying point. And, and there's, there is an opportunity for uh, the Bills to take this and turn this into something helpful. Uh, and and I'll, I'll stress an opportunity because it's no guarantee that they'll have that perspective. Um, certainly if they're still kind of wrestling with the uh, emotional shock of it all. But, but there is that opportunity if they have the right perspective. What about uh, the athlete that has been injured? I mean, obviously, it's great news that he's making progress, but doctors stress he's got an awfully long way to go. How does the athlete deal with this? Yeah, the athlete is is probably, well, I mean, like the doctor said, you know, the won, won the game of life at the moment. And you kind of need to check in with kind of the broader questions of your place in the sport and your place within um, well, within life, really, before you start um, looking at how you're going to get back and how you're going to reintegrate back into a team, and so right now you're kind of it's it's a bit of a you know hierarchy of needs. You're you're spending time with your loved ones. You're making sure that uh, the medical readouts are turning up the way that they should, and uh, hopefully you're not worrying yourself too much beyond that at the moment. Dr. Andrew Friesen with us, Associate Professor of Kinesiology with Pennsylvania State University, Certified Mental Performance Consultant with the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Cheers. Have a very good weekend. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've certainly known what uh, inflation and rising interest rates, what has happened with the economy, also in regard to housing. And especially in the last year when we saw houses uh, through the latter part of the pandemic just go up through the roof. And now prices have uh, leveled out, dropping about 9% around the GTHA. To talk more about all of this, Lou Piriano is with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington and with us now. Lou, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Happy New Year. Afternoon. Happy New Year to all your listeners as well. Lou, obviously we've seen prices uh, go through the roof in the last uh, little while, the the latter stages of the pandemic and such, uh, down 9% now. Is this a concern or is this just a natural correction of things? Well, it's not natural. It's, uh, the, the unnatural part is that it's government interference uh, as usual uh, in the market uh, by raising the interest rates, uh, you know, in an unprecedented fashion and a steep curve upward. They've they've done uh, they've done what you see today, and uh, what goes up must come down. Uh, I think interest rates will come down in the uh, foreseeable future, and so uh, I think uh, the demand is always going to be there for. For housing, it's still there. We've got increased immigration coming, a whole bunch of other stuff that is going to keep prices uh, firm, I believe, and, and not uh, not really going anywhere too far from where they are now. So this is less stabilization and more policy, the result of those higher interest rates. Yeah, 100%. Uh, you know, there's an inverse relationship between interest rates and prices. Uh, throughout the years, you, you know, you can, it's palpable, you can trace it. So, uh, you know, interest rates will come back down. However, I don't think they're going to come back down to exactly what they were before, but uh, but close enough that uh, um, there and there's other things that the government can do to, you know, stop the pain 
that do, won't cost them anything and would help consumers. For example, they could go with a 40-year amortization for mortgages rather than the current 25 or 30-year limits. Uh, they could uh, scrap the stress test, which unfairly blocks out young buyers. Uh, the stress test uh, has been eliminated in England. The Bank of England did about two months ago. So unless we're a whole lot smarter than, than they are, maybe we should have a look at that as well. Um, there's, a, there's a number of things the federal government can do from a tax perspective to get more properties on the market. Um, got to do with capital gains tax. If you happen to own a triplex for the last 10 years, you may be reluctant to sell it because it'll attract the tax. But in some jurisdictions, they say, look, at as long as you're going to reinvest that money in a greater or equal price tag for another property, we will defer that tax. So there's lots of stuff the government can do if they just want to, you know, give give their heads a shake and say, hey, uh, this isn't working for, for most of our, you know, most of our people that are voting for us. Uh, obviously, high inflation, uh, higher interest rates. There's been chatter of a recession. Many have said it won't be the same because the employment rate's so high. And you have to think it has to be the same for the housing industry because, again, no matter what the prices do, there's still a vast shortage of houses. And as you mentioned, uh, up to a half a million immigrants scheduled to come in to relieve the labor shortages that we have, and we need to bring them in. However, how is how is that going to add to the situation? We can barely supply the people that we have what's it going to be like with that extra stress yeah i think some of the things you want to do is you know if you have an interest in the market other than just a general uh interest uh specific one you know call one of our members excuse me and find out what's going on in your neighborhood our statistics are able to go right down into you know block by block analysis of what's going on and so in terms of how is it going to affect uh, clearly, it's going to put more stress on the market. And and so, you know, I had the privilege of listening to uh, CIBC chief economist Benjamin Tull twice mm. in the last 60 days, actually. And although he's changed his forecast a little bit, he's now calling for interest rates to come down in maybe the first quarter of 24 rather than the third quarter or fourth quarter. <clears throat> but the other thing he said was that during the pandemic, everybody thinks there was no immigration he said there was actually 400,000 people that immigrated to Canada, yeah. uh, but none of them came from out of the country. In other words, they were all students who had been offered the chance to uh, apply for uh, residency. So now, now you're probably going to have those same students plus a whole bunch of other people. So you tell me what's going to drive price prices further down. I can't think of anything. Do you think, um, uh, again, the, the demand for more immigration, the need for more immigration is going to speed up housing policy in any way? Because, you, you know, we've got a problem without that even into the, in, in the mix. And then you add that into the mix. It just where is this going to go? Yeah, well, it already has. Right? Doug Ford has already lost his sense of humor and he's uh, he's put into place a very aggressive uh, measures to make sure that we do have. Uh, housing uh, at least started. At least that's the, what he's trying to do. Whether it'll be successful or not is another issue. But um, one thing I'd like to clarify too: you often hear uh, on the media and on talk shows that about the green space yep. and about farmland going away. Uh, what people should know is that the urban boundary is not the same thing as green space as mm-hmm. as uh, protected areas. Um, the urban boundary is simply a, a place on the map where the city has said, we're not going to build any more houses right now beyond this street. Not necessarily have anything to do with arable land. So please don't confuse the two when you hear them and don't don't panic that, you know, uh, anybody's trying to give away or, or, you know, starve us to death. That's not the issue. And the urban boundary has been expanded in Hamilton recently, and it's going to help. But these things takes these things take three to five or ten years to get on the market. Hmm. And, you know, many are saying, uh, don't expand the green belt. Uh, you've got all this other area, but then nobody's building in the white belts either, as you're saying. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, we're, no, nobody wants to see farmland uh, go the way of the Dodo Berg and, 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 you know, starve to death. But that's not what we're, that's not what we're uh, advocating no. for. There is land to build on. Uh, there are government buildings. There are plazas. There are brownfields. There, there's a whole array of uh, options to get things started. Lou Periano with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, on where we are in the housing market at this point. Lou, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, happy New Year to everybody. 
We certainly have uh, seen um, many police funerals over the last uh, couple of months and such, and the latest one in Barrie just this week, and the OPP commissioner commenting that um, the person who allegedly shot the officer should not have been out in Canada needs tougher bail reform. Uh, those are my words, not his. Does Canada need tougher bail reform? Let's bring in Jeff Madison, criminal lawyer, Ross McBride, former Crown attorney, and with us now. Jeff, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. Well, yes, uh, just fine, Scott. How about you? So far, so good. I know this, Jeff, is an incredibly emotional issue. Uh, there's always two sides of it, the scales of justice, all of that. Um, we know we need bail, as there are innocent people in jail who are have not faced trial yet, and should they be waiting in jail? How do you balance who stays in, who gets out? Well, first and foremost, I would say that when you have a horrific crime such as this, allegedly committed by somebody who's out on bail and somebody who, at least in the information in the newspaper reports, was the subject of firearm prohibition orders. There's a natural inclination to say, A, this is a failure in our judicial interim release system as a whole, and certainly that's a, that's a pretty good argument. Where I have some difficulties, we say, and therefore we should change our entire bail structure, or we need to get tougher on bail and we have to change our system as I've seen some politicians, including our premier, um, take the view, and I don't agree with those. I don't take a case that could be considered to be a failure and say we need to overhaul the whole system, because as you've identified, it's got, it's not as simple as reacting emotionally. And so it's, it's less about changing the system and more about just implementing what we have? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a good way one could put it. Uh, something that I, I think has been I'll say it's been overlooked or not received as much consideration as it might. The issue of bail is something that's been the subject of consideration over the last many years. And statistical studies have shown that you've got a lot more people who are in custody awaiting trial than those serving sentences. And a number of those have been picked up under circumstances where they might have been charged with breaching some relatively minor bail conditions or there may be people who couldn't get a surety to sign on their behalf, and they otherwise might be a good candidate for a release. And it's been the subject of some extensive study, which I've read about, and then consideration by the Supreme Court of Canada has said, look, we have to really take a look at it and review uh, the nature of when we should impose conditions on our release, when people could be out on the least restrictive form. And then Parliament caught up with that with some amendments to the code, because there is an over-incarceration of people who are awaiting trial. That's been recognized, and it's particularly problematic for minority communities, whether Indigenous or people of color. So there has been a concerted effort to try and say, look, we have to find more ways to let people out. They can be on some terms where they might be involved in some sales supervision. We want to only impose restrictive conditions when necessary. But you know, so what, what, else, you know what else is overlooked, Scott, is the Crown has the power to appeal in order to releasing something. They can bring a bail review if they felt the person was out and shouldn't have been. You never really hear that mentioned, and you don't really hear it used at all that often. So what happened here, Jeff? Was this person, should this person have been let out? They should not have been let out, and, and, and you know, a T wasn't crossed, an I wasn't dotted. What happened here in your mind? Well, as we read about it in the paper, we see that the individual had, at least as the reports show, a, a criminal record with offenses which led to him being subjected the firearm prohibition orders, and he was up on some additional offenses of violence, and he was released on some terms. And Scott, I haven't seen whether there was a surety or not, or what kind of conditions were imposed. I think that the person's record was went back at least it was a few years back. So I'm going to presume there were some terms and conditions that were designed to restrict the person getting out. And I can tell you, by the way, that where a firearm is allegedly involved, it's the onus on him to show why he shouldn't be detained. And there are factors that he'd have to show the court that he'd appear in court, that he'd follow conditions of release, and as well that it wouldn't be in the public interest to say he'd have to be detained. And one factor in that regard could be firearms. And then apparently, Scott, from the newspaper story, he failed to appear. So now you say, well, what measures were implemented to try and find him? I don't know the local police resources, and I don't know what effort was made to find him. It happens there are people who fail to appear in court warrants outstanding. 
So you're saying we don't need a uh, whole system change, but I think everybody's in agreement that this person should not have been out. So how do we fix this so people like this don't get out, others that deserve to be do? And when we say this person shouldn't get out, based obviously on if we assume for the moment he did what he did and rem- or he what's he alleged to have done, remember Scott, we've got to give him the better presumption of innocence. Okay, that's a legal issue. But if you work on the basis that if he in fact did this, he shouldn't have gotten out, hindsight would tell you, of course, that's obvious. But we never have the benefit of hindsight when decisions are made to let somebody out. Of the so, but was the former rap? Was the former rap sheet not? Was the former rap sheet not enough to say, you know what, the chances are here? <laughs> well, if a guy, the guy had a record for, I think, a robbery from 2018, maybe. Um, he had a couple of, I think, convictions for assault or related defense. Um, certainly, he's not somebody who's going to be allowed to be out in his own undertaking. We can store his own simply a conditions, a basic conditions, own signature. But Scott, we don't know, at least as you and I are sitting here today, knowing who was supposed to be supervising if anybody had any good sign on his behalf. What exactly were the terms that were imposed? So I can't really comment right now and to say, well, he shouldn't have gotten out because it cried out for that. I I, I won't won't say that looking at the information I have in the paper, I can only offer this. If it was so problematic on the face of it that he, one, it's clear he shouldn't have gotten out, one would have expected the Crown would have brought a bail review. Did they? Not that I've read or heard. It was an option. You don't say, well, change the system because this guy shouldn't have gotten out. That's, I think, our starting uh, lack of resources, I'm sure, will be brought up as for not crossing the T's and dotting the I's, uh, as you were suggesting, and whether this was followed up with or that is followed up with. Many Canadians may just look at that as passing the buck. At the end of the day, this person should not have been out, and he was. There was a mistake made. We need to fix this. Sure, and I don't know that I'd even say it's a matter simply of resources. I think that it involves simply a recognition that at the time that you decide whether or not somebody should or shouldn't get out, you try and evaluate it based on the evidence that you have and applying the principles that the Supreme Court of Canada has set down, as well as what the criminal code provides. And you make the judgment call. I mean, Scott, you could take the position anytime anybody's sentenced to a particular offense, he serves a sentence, he reoffends. Oh, he should have gotten a longer sentence. Well, maybe right. and maybe not. It's not as simple as that. Somebody is out on bail, reoffends. You say, well, that person shouldn't have gotten out. In fairness to the officials who are involved, they're making the call based on the information that they have, and it doesn't automatically follow. And in fact, I bet you if we had a look at stats, you're going to have tons of people involved in allegations of offenses like this guy and worse who didn't reoffend well. What do you say about them? What's What are the news coverage for the people who got out on terms and conditions and followed them without fail? Yeah. Where, where yeah. do we factor that into the equation? So how would, if you were the judge, Jeff, that, that granted this person, uh, let them out, granted them bail, how would you feel about this? Would you, whoops, I made a mistake, or hey, I'm dealing with what I've got here, and this is the president's, uh, precedence, and so he's out? Well, I, I'm sure for, for the justice of the peace who let him out, that justice would probably say, gee, this, no, I feel badly about this the way that it's unfolded. But in fairness to that justice, if I was sitting with him or her, I'd say, let's be fair to you and say, what did you have before you at the time? Was the decision to release reasonable based on what you had at the time? Um, I, I bet, uh, Scott, that every judicial official, and frankly, I'm sure lots of crowns too, reflect when you have somebody who might reoffend after a case they had some involvement with, they could go back and look at it and say, should I have asked for more? Should I have hit the person harder on something? Should I have kept them in? But it, it, it's really an impossible situation to expect perfection. And you never give them the benefit of, uh, I heard it, I think, the, the retroscope, you know, 2020 hindsight. People involved in the justice system from all standpoints make the call applying principles and applying applying their best judgment. We don't evaluate it with a right or, right or wrong by, well, look how it turned out afterwards. It's not that, that simple. It's not that easy task. And it's impossible to expect it of them anyway. Jeff Manishin with us, criminal lawyer, Ross and McBride, former Crown attorney, speaking on lots of questions around bail reform and whether it needs to be toughened up or not. Jeff, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Certainly, Scott, you two interesting issues to uh, to discuss in such a terrible, tragic situation. It's one that everybody, I'm sure, is angry about. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, we've been talking about uh, China and the fact that they have absolutely lost control of their ability to contain COVID-19 with their zero tolerance um, uh, method, I guess, and lack of vaccination. Um, and, and we know, uh, obviously, where they are at this point. Coming up in January 8th, uh, they've re- re- reduced a lot of their restrictions there because people have um, obviously uh, complained and, and the lockdowns are inhumane and such that they've been implementing for quite a while now. Uh, they're releasing, uh, are, are gradually relaxing some of those, including, as of January 8th, issuing travel passports to Chinese that want to travel around the world. As a result of that, dozens of countries have implemented uh, restrictions saying that anybody that travels from China will require a negative test to arrive in their country. Canada, one of those countries. Oddly enough, China's complaining about all of this, but they do the exact same thing. <laughs> if you want to fly there, you got to provide a negative test. Let's bring in Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population, Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hello, Scott. I am. Thank you. All right. Your thoughts. Uh, first, let's talk about the travel ban. It's in the news. Uh, your thoughts on this. We, we hear that it doesn't work because the stuff is already here. Uh, that being said, obviously, uh, travel and uh, uh, passports being issued there for January 8th. Are people overreacting? Are countries overreacting to this? Uh, possibly. You could make an argument that they were. There's, don't expect a great deal of, uh, uh, of benefit. And not if you go back to 2020, when you and I started the talk, you realize that's almost three years ago now. When we, I know. Uh, I know. Back then, we were, we were trying to keep a virus out. I mean, we didn't want the virus in Canada at all. And we, we found one coming in. We tried to stamp it out and so on. It didn't really work very well. But that's, that was the situation then. Now it's very different. We're knee deep in the virus. It's just where we should be actually at this point as we slide down the slope of a of a pandemic into what really is a uh, an endemic uh, we, we we see the, the virus is everywhere if you want the coronavirus it's on every street corner it's on every third person you meet so is this don't expect this to be a great deal of advantage where we might see an advantage is is in strategic sampling protocols that uh, that are looking for variants we want to see just the proportion of the virus around that is a new particular variant. That's that's the advantage. Are you seeing anything on the horizon that has you concerned? Uh, we haven't heard this term in a while, variants of concern. And the World Health Organization stopped short of calling uh, this virus, a, a, a this uh, variant, a variant of concern. So uh, is this something to be concerned about? We've heard it spreads faster than any other version of this, but obviously is not as lethal. You're probably talking about the the XBB 1.5. Yeah, uh, that is uh, that was oh what between one and five percent in the United States and the Northeast, which is the center of it, and it's now up to about forty percent, probably going up to fifty percent of the viruses uh, in the next few days. Uh, we can expect, you know, we're just over the border. I'd expect Windsor and uh, and uh, Niagara and your area to be to be some mm-hmm. of the first. We we've got a few cases isolated in BC, but it doesn't take long. What we know about this is this is a product of, of a recombination of, of uh, other members of the Omicron family, particularly the, the BA2. Not the, the four and five are sort of beginning to diminish now, but the, going back to the BA2, this is a recombination version of that one. And the, what it's, the characteristics, it's very early days yet, but it seems to be that it, 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 it attaches to our ACE2 receptors a little more effectively. And this is why it seems to be moving into the number one spot in terms of transmission and how, how we can expect it to be the number one virus, uh, given, given it enough time. That time wouldn't be more than a few weeks, probably, the way the others have happened. Uh, we remember when Omicron came in and pushed out Delta, which was obviously much more lethal. Is the same thing going to happen here, where the XBB 1.5 is going to push out Omicron and this spreading more, but again, less lethal than even Omicron? 
Yeah, the, the ability of a virus to spread more rapidly has got actually nothing to do with lethality, uh, very distantly maybe, but nothing really. It, it's just that does it transmit more rapidly? Is it able to uh, attach to your and my receptors in our lungs and the other parts of the body? And, and of course, can it escape or evade some of the immunity we've built up? This is very different, uh, Scott, to what if you and I were talking to even a year ago, we didn't have a, a, as such a good wall of immunity that we have at the moment. It's not perfect by any means, but it's certainly much better than a year ago, and it's infinitely better than uh, poor folks in China at the moment who haven't even really begun to start building their wall of immunity up. It's, it's, very, it's a very sad situation. China was doing so well in the very beginning, but, uh, but because they hung on to their belief of zero COVID and the rest of the world said, it's no, it's, that's the wrong way to go. Now mm. they've opened up the doors. And of course, trade and tourism are going to be spreading it in in a very wild way. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus, School of Population and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. Tim, as always, thanks for your time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we have certainly talked a lot uh, over the last uh, several weeks, months, whatever, uh, in regard to uh, the shortage of housing and the massive uh, demand and little supply and where we are today. Uh, obviously, we also know that uh, Canada is planning to increase its levels of immigration, which is badly needed because of labor shortages and such. So, again, Canada built on a population of immigration. I'm a first-generation uh, Canadian myself. My mother was an immigrant here. But have we have we planned for the arrival and the new demand that all of these immigrants are going to put on our infrastructure, on our hospital systems, on housing, what have you. Uh, has that been thought out as well as just the need to have more Canadians here to do the job? Let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year, Scott. So your thoughts, uh, we were talking to uh, the head of the uh, Hamilton Burlington Realtors Association, and obviously they are concerned about the lack of supply even before all of this and cited that this is going to even put more demand on what we have, on the supply that we have, and, and obviously looking for more. What are your thoughts on all of this? Have we done the planning? Are we ready for this? No, no, we're not. I've been making this argument for several years. Actually, the reason I'm talking about immigration is because not because that's my area of research. My area is is housing. I was a mortgage manager. I lent money for nine years in the 70s and 80s. I've testified many times before House of Commons Finance Committee on housing, on Canada mortgage and housing and policies towards lending for uh, home ownership. And I've studied the data up and down and left and right. I've know, I know the data cold in terms of housing shortages by region, by city. And the more I looked at it in the last two, three, four years, the more I realized as the big cities where the immigrants go overwhelmingly to the largest cities, fine and dandy, their choice, freedom of choice. But it's these cities that are working most assiduously to try to stop new housing, or at least a lot more new housing. I'm talking the GTA. I'm talking Vancouver. I'm talking the city of Ottawa. I'm talking Hamilton, yep. where councillors are doing their very best to reduce, they they've conjured up this uh, re, uh, this idea of urban sprawl, which is I argue is a pejorative rebranding of population growth driven by immigration. So they don't want to come out and say they're against immigration. That would be that's just not acceptable in our country because there's a consensus that we uh, have profited enormously from immigration. My father was an immigrant too, by the way, came here after the war and emigrated as an adult. Uh, and my grandparents all emigrated here on my mother's side. So, I mean, I'm, Brian Mulroney was right. We're all immigrants. Okay, so, but where I'm, where I'm going with this is we have a shortage in this country as we speak. CMHC, you know, Scotiabank said it was 1.8 million houses short. CMHC says it's approaching 3 million. Now, let's side uh, go sideways for a moment to another area that we all talk about, healthcare. 
We know there's queuing big time across. I mean, they're closing emergency departments in some hospitals. Perth, which is a small town outside of my city, about an hour from Ottawa, very close to where I grew up on a farm in eastern Ontario, literally 20 minutes away. They're closing their emergency. Carlton Place, where I did go to school, is closing their emergency. What's that got to do with immigration? We can't handle the current levels of immigration and, and we're not resourcing what needs to be done to handle the necessary increases in immigration. And we are not having that conversation. We're not challenging the councillors of Hamilton or Ottawa or the GTA or Vancouver uh, in their essentially anti-immigration policies, because that's what they are, people. Let's call it what it is. Let's drag them out of the closet and put them under the scrutiny in the court of public opinion. What are we going to do when we don't have enough houses now and we don't? That's empirical. It's on the record. And we're bringing in another half a million people a year. And this is not I am not arguing that we should be not bringing in immigration. We yep. can quibble over the numbers, but we desperately we have job shortages of, of almost a million jobs unfilled. We need immigration. The problem is not immigration. The problem are the councillors and those activists who are trying to stop houses being built to uh, provide housing for new Canadians that come to Canada. It's funny, they ran a campaign on this radio station saying, we know who the secret sprawlers are, but really, they're, anti, they're secret anti-immigration people. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying, because the vast majority of StatsCan, this is StatsCan data, by the way, so people can say that's your opinion, Ian. No, it's not. Almost all population growth going forward is going to come from immigration. That is from Stats Canada. I'll repeat that. Almost all population growth in Canada from 2020 going forward is going to come from immigration. So that's another way of saying all the need for housing growth is going to come from the demands of immigration. We need to build more houses. So when people come out and try and stop new suburbs or new housing uh, uh, projects, what they're trying to do is stop the housing that was going to provide housing for immigration. And, and you know, I've had these, I debated this in Ottawa, I've debated, I went before council, and their weak response is, oh, we have a solution, it's called densification. And, you know, we'll build lots and lots of high-rises in the urban core. Yeah. Well, the Europeans have done that, They and they're called les banlieues, which is are basically immigrant ghettos. And they're saying, no, 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 we don't want the immigrants living out in the suburbs with all the other people. No, 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 is what they're saying. And and so we have to confront this. If we're going to support immigration, I support immigration, and we, we've got to build more homes. We've got to build them in the big cities where immigrants uh, move uh, disproportionately statistically. Again, that's not an opinion. This is Hard Stats Canada data. Dr. Ian Lee with us, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, we need more immigrants, but we do. We have the infrastructure, the housing in which to provide for them once they arrive. Uh, Ian, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. Bail hearings have been scheduled today for four of the eight girls facing second-degree murder charges in the death of a Toronto homeless man. I mean, I'm sure you heard of this story. It's just absolutely brutal. Police have said that three 13-year-olds, three 14-year-olds, and two 16-year-olds allegedly swarmed and stabbed a 59-year-old man in the city's downtown core in Toronto in mid-December. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Tony Volk is with us, Brock University Professor of Child and Youth Studies, and with us. Now, Tony, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, thanks. What were your thoughts, Tony, when you first saw or heard of this story? What came to mind? I think like most people, I, I was pretty shocked, uh, both by the age uh, of the people who were involved, uh, as well as the fact that they were girls, um, which both are odd for this kind of really violent attack. Uh, obviously, we know very little about the individuals, uh, Young Offenders Act uh, in play or, or the uh, um, the equivalent of that. I'm, I don't, I'm sure I don't have my terminology right there. Um, but, but, you know, I mean, every, uh, the first question that comes to mind is what went wrong here? How, how does this even happen? Apparently, these girls met on social media from various parts of, of the city and then came together. Uh, is there any explanation on the little information that we do have? 
Well, I think the one thing that can help explain a small portion is that we know that people in groups, and especially teenagers, are really vulnerable to going along with the group, behaving with the group, getting carried uh, up by the mob, and doing something that they wouldn't ordinarily do. So it wouldn't surprise me if some of the members of this group um, were relatively benign individuals under normal circumstances. But something clearly here has gone terribly wrong with, uh, you know, even just a desire for them to meet up over social media suggests that at least some of these individuals probably have some form of trauma and or some kind of personality disorder. Uh, obviously, uh, 13-year-olds, 14 and 16, are we to assume that the older, uh, the 16-year-olds are the ringleaders? That's usually a safe bet. Um, the one exception that could apply here um, is that if there's somebody, for example, who was a real narcissist or a psychopathic personality traits, those people tend to be very uh, convincing, very charming, um, and can lure people into doing things that they might not otherwise do. You can think of you know, certain cult figures. But again, that's usually traits that appear older uh, in older individuals, and particularly they're much more common in boys and men than they are in girls. So it's really an unusual situation as far as to having these young girls carrying out this particularly violent and personal crime. You know, I think, Tony, that, that most could accept or understand, you know, teens getting together, meeting at social media, creating hell, creating havoc, breaking law, whatever. But taking the life of an innocent person is another stage. Uh, how do you get from delinquency, uh, raising hell, uh, breaking laws to actually taking someone's life? Yeah, that's a really big leap. Um, and there is a very interesting book. Uh, called On Killing, written by a U.S. Army colonel about what it takes to kill another person in combat. And the data shows really strongly that it's very hard to kill somebody up close, somebody you don't know. So, you know, versus somebody's firing an artillery gun, actually going up and stabbing somebody with a knife is very hard and very traumatic for soldiers who do it. So the fact that you had these young girls going and engaging in this really personal and upfront kind of attack suggests some serious psychological barriers were broken. How much could you blame this? And again, we don't know. We're just speculating on perhaps uh, high on drugs or something. Um, didn't know what they were doing. Does that factor in? Uh, you know, it, again, because it's such a breach of most people's norms and, and even antisocial kids, even psychopaths don't normally go out and do this sort of thing for enjoyment. I'm talking men who are incarcerated in maximum security prisons with psychopathic traits don't just go out stabbing people. The fact that they were willing to do this, certainly drugs could have been involved, but it really suggests that their minds were far off of a normal skew. You talked about you were surprised that this was a group of girls. Uh, more of this stuff sort of happens with, with gangs of guys, uh, boys and such. What is your take on the gender issue and, and the fact that this was, these were girls? Yeah, in boys and men, uh, one of the biggest reasons for uh, what police call trivial homicides, so these are you know not a robbery or catching a spouse in bed, etc., is young men fighting over a sense of honor or toughness or, you know, who's the alpha. And those sorts of things can spiral out of control pretty quickly. But that's much less common in girls. And in fact, if you look at homicide rates, just about anywhere in, in the world, uh, yeah. men kill 10 times more often than women do. And women are often killing in self-defense, you know, say uh, killing mm. shooting a battered husband, et cetera. So this kind of predatory, uh, unknown aggression where you're attacking a stranger uh, particularly with you know a group of friends that you met off of social networking is it's groundbreaking in the sense that it, it nothing that I know in my studies of adult criminality or child antisociality really lines up nicely with this. 
You talked about alpha males. Is such a thing as alpha females? I mean, is that changing? Is this increasing? Social media bringing more of this to the forefront, making it appear more acceptable? Uh, you can, and there there certainly was a case, uh, if I remember, I think it was in Vancouver, where some teenage girls went and stabbed another girl. Um, and that was the case where it was over status. But that was the case where they knew the victim. And so there was already a history of bad blood and this kind of, you know, uh, status game came into play. Attacking a homeless person in particular is, you know, there's no challenge from a homeless person. They're not a high status person. There's not a target of opportunity other than they're vulnerable, which really suggests this was a predatory kind of attack, which again is quite unusual for such a young age and quite unusual for um, girls to be engaging in. Um, as you said, no real reason for it. Certainly not a threat from um, from the homeless man, um, you know, at all. Um, how does it make you look at this differently because of that? The, you know, this reminds me of, you know, kids killing a bug because they can. That seems like a good analogy. You know, it seems like it was done for fun. You know, so this wasn't yeah. something that happened in, you know, the, the course of committing another crime, uh, you know, say they got caught robbing something and they accidentally uh, fatally injured somebody. It's not a case where an argument seems to have spilled out, gotten out of hand. This is them deliberately getting together beforehand, which suggests some degree of forethought hmm. and then attacking as a group. You know, police have, haven't suggested it was just one individual again, suggests that there might have been some really sinister kind of forethought behind this attack. Tony Volk with us, Brock University Professor of Child and Youth Studies, talking about the uh, eight girls facing second-degree murder charges in the death of a Toronto homeless man before Christmas. Tony, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks, and you too. Joining me now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. Your your thoughts. Yesterday, uh, we're watching the Team Canada game. Uh, my son was at a uh, buddy's with a pile of kids watching the game, and we're literally texting back and forth. Honestly, Scott, I thought this was a done deal after the first period. I thought there's no way that uh, even getting the goal and, and making it 2-1, this is going to turn around. And, and lo and behold, look what happened. Your thoughts on the game and the one that's coming up tonight. Well, uh, this, you know, there's an old saying that uh, it's it's become quite a cliche now, and I, I get very tired of people saying it all the time, but it's uh, applicable, which is this is why you play the game. And this yep. is why the games are 60 minutes, not 10 <laughs> minutes or 20 yep. minutes. And, uh, you know, you if you're a good enough team and Canada's got a pretty good team, you can get away with having a bad period. You know, some teams wouldn't be able to, but you're right. They, they looked, um, in they, the looked first awful. Period, they looked overmatched. They looked like the yep. U S was going to steamroll them. Yep. And all of a sudden, you know, one goal changes the dynamic and gets the crowd into it and the home ice and everything else. And, uh, now that said, not to, you know, take anything away from Canada or poo poo the whole thing. That first, no goal call yeah was horrible that was a goal that was, i mean I, look i'm not rooting for the americans but that was a goal and i don't know that that changes anything but that that should which one was that was that the one with the guy in the crease yes or the, yeah, where he, he pushed sort of, it under the pad well no not the push the push under the pad the second no goal was yeah. definitely not a goal yeah. that's illegal but the first one the guy's got position and he's trying to get he's on the puck and he bumped yeah. the goal but he he didn't bump the goalie to get to the puck he had the puck and I, I mean, look, I think that was a goal. Whether that would have changed the outcome, I don't know. But I think on that case, the Americans have a bone. Look, let's flip it around. Imagine for a second Canada had started out 2 nothing, yep. and then that goal got waved off against Canada. People right now would mm-hmm. be calling for a royal commission to ban all European <laughs> referees from ever doing a, a world junior game again. So, it, look, it was it was a great game. And, and hopefully tonight, I mean, don't forget, this is the team tonight that beat Canada earlier and made them look kind of bad. So we'll so, see if anything's changed. 
And so U.S. played Sweden today for the bronze and barely beat them. Um, it was a, it eventually decided in a shootout, from what I understand. So can the U.S. say, hey, we were robbed here? Or like, you were barely good enough to beat the to get bronze here? Uh, yeah. I, I See, that's another. Sports has so much psychology involved. Yeah. In, and so often you'll see a team, when they have bronze medal matches in whatever sport, you'll see a team that was really great that loses the gold, like the, the set the semifinal game and then they get to the bronze medal game and they're just so deflated and not there. Yeah. I, I, the Americans are a very, very good team and, and truly yeah. if they're in the gold medal game, they probably would have played way better than they did today. So it's, it, you know, you've, you're, you're, you've sort of lost the focus once you've lost that game. It's really hard. Those bronze medal games, again, at whatever sports they do it at, it's really yeah. hard to say, we're not getting what we came for, but let's try and get really like ramped up to go get it again. Yeah, exactly. Let's go celebrate number three. Uh, what are your thoughts on tonight? Well, as I say, I mean, this is the team that beat Canada earlier and uh, full measure for beating them. It wasn't like, I mean, Canada didn't play particularly well, but it wasn't like Chechia. And, and by the way, when did they become Chechia again? I, I, I was going to ask you the same thing. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. Is this not Czechoslovakia? But well, no, I, the Czech I, you know, things have changed. Or, yeah, yes. I, I, yeah. Just, I can't keep track, but nonetheless, um, they were very, very good and they have caused Canada problems before and they have a good system and they play well. And if their goalie is good, you know, I, this is as much as Canada should win this because Canada does have the most talent and the most draft yeah. picks and the most NHL and all that. Canada should win. But you know what? Back in, um, remember in Nagano with Wayne Gretzky in Canada playing against the Czech Republic with Dominic Hasek, Canada should have steamrolled them. And what happened? So, you know, that's that. I, that's, I don't know. That's How the why hell you, you play the games. I don't know. How the hell do you remember that? Don't you clearly remember? You're the, clearly, you're the sports guy here. Don't you remember in the Olympics when Mark Crawford, the coach of the team, decided not to shoot, have Wayne Gretzky take one of the shots in the shootout and everyone lost their mind? You've got the greatest <laughs> player. Now, he was never good on breakaways, but you've got the greatest player of all time sitting on the bench. If you're the coach... And I know we're revisiting old history here, but he had Brendan Shanahan take the last shot. Brendan Shanahan basically looked like he didn't want to be there and flubbed it. If you've got the greatest offensive player in history, do you not want to go down in your ship having at least used that guy? Put yeah, the, good point. Put it on him, and if he doesn't do it, no one's going to say to you, oh, why did you, why'd you use Gretzky? Who's Gretzky? You know, like you, I, it's very defendable, and I everyone. So anyway, that was uh, that was the Czech Republic. That was a mismatch, and Canada lost that one. So who knows what'll happen tonight? So with that, can you give us a prediction? I know you love doing that. I know I hate this, but I mean, Canada should win. They're at home. They've got the better team. They are certainly motivated after no, like they're not going to get caught. Let's put it that way. They're not going to be overconfident because they've already lost to these guys. You would expect that Canada will come out flying because they know that if they don't. They will lose to these guys. They're good enough to beat them. So I, I, I think Canada wins tonight, but um, I don't I don't really expect a blowout because Chechia, which I can't spell, but I can say, um, <laughs> is a pretty good team. <laughs> All right. We'll leave it at that. Hang on a second. I think I have it. Yeah. It's uh, C-Z-E-C-H-I-A. Yeah. Well, that's there you go. good to know. That'll be on the quiz tomorrow. <laughs> uh, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Have a great show, Scott. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Tom McKay, Will Erskine, Diana Weeks, and Dave Woodard in the newsroom for helping us out. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So obviously the new variant of COVID is terrible. It's obviously terrible. And yet with a nickname like Kraken, I just cannot stop picturing Lawrence Oliver shouting, Release the Kraken! Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.